We're taking a summer break, so I'm revisiting some of my most favourite guests from the Conversations of Inspiration Library. When thinking about who this week's guest should be, I knew it had to be Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, MBE. It's a privilege to record each episode, but as I closed the door on Wilfred's apartment after leaving the recording, I was struck with a deep sense of having been in the presence of some of the most insightful and profound attitudes to life that I'd ever encountered. So much wisdom, so much life advice and experience burst out of this episode. Have a cup of tea in hand and enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Well, hello, Wilfred. What an honour it is to be sat here in your home today in Battersea. We're overlooking the Thames, glorious light. We've had our cross on and our coffee and we briefly chatted, I know, on the phone before we met. And I know um, you're going to be an exceptional guest and I cannot wait to talk to you on Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you for giving me this moment in your busy schedule. You have an amazing story. So I wanted to start from the very beginning. You were born in Jamaica, one of nine children, and your family emigrated to the UK, starting life in a terrace house in Small Heath, Birmingham. Can you remember what that time of your life was like? And were there entrepreneurial flashes back in your nine-year-old self? Before um, I answer that question, let me um, first of all put the record straight because people may be wondering when you mentioned we're sitting here in Battersea. Um, Battersea doesn't actually sound very much like sort of farmland. And um, <laughs> this is where I sort of stay when I come up to um, to London to do business. But my my actual home is, is, is down in, on the Devon Cornwall border near a place called Launceston, or as they keep telling me down there, you've got to pronounce it Lanson. So for those who are Cornish, Lanson. Um, that is where my, my, my home is and that is where my, my farm is. So just thought I'd put the record straight. And so back to answering your question, um, Holly. As you rightly said, I was actually born in Jamaica and um, I was born in a place called Clarendon, um, Frankfield. So if you went there today, you'd see quite a lot of subsistence farmers working the land. So in, in a sense, it's very, very rural. And one of the things I like to remind people of is that um, people like my parents who came to this country in the 50s and 60s, um, it was a very entrepreneurial thing to do to leave everything that you know behind you, to try and better your life, to try and improve the lives of your children is very entrepreneurial because for all those who came, a lot didn't. And um, in my case, my family um, went to Birmingham and um, they settled in a place called Small Heath. But you know, the only um, thing I could say about um, the place where I was brought up in Birmingham, it's a bit of a shithole, basically. The memory is, is so awful that even though I left the place um, some 40, 50 years ago, you know, I have absolutely no fond memories about the place. It was fucking <laughs> awful. It was absolutely <laughs> awful. And um, as you said in your intro, I'm, I was brought up in a two-up, two-down terrace house and there was 11 of us, 11 of us living in that house. And so you can imagine how cramped it was. And you could see that I really needed to get to some, some sense of space. Um, not only was it a very cramped environment, but we were also very, very poor. And I can remember my mother trying to feed 11 people with one chicken. 
And even to this day, I've got this great fetish about chewing chicken bones because um, we had to try and get every sort of morsel, morsel. of new of nutrition out to you know this this small chicken to feed um, eleven people. And as a way of supplementing the family income, my father had an allotment, and it was my responsibility as the oldest boy to look after this allotment. And I could remember absolutely clearly to this day that being on this allotment was my oasis away from the misery mm. that I was surrounded by. Mm. And then this is the important part of my story. At the age of 11, I remember when I was 11 years old, I made myself a promise that one day I would like to have my own farm. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but it was a, a dream that I'd lodged into the back of my mind. And then everything that I subsequently did with my life was to try and get into the position to buy um, this farm. And so one of the things I like to tell people, and I really emphasize this point, the most important thing, especially being English as well, is to have the courage to dream. Mm -hmm. Americans are very open about, you know, I have a dream. They will, you know, think that it's really important to, to have a vision and a dream. We tend to be a bit more cynical about this idea of dreaming in, in the UK. But it is absolutely essential that the first stage in achieving anything is to have the courage to dream. Reach for the stars. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. What do you think holds us back in that that way that the Americans do dream? They visualise, they, they, they focus on what that vision is. Why do you think we don't necessarily as a, as a country? Well, part of it is to do with our heritage. I think that the Americans, are, they're an immigrant society. Everybody who went to that country was leaving something behind to go and to try and make life better. So the mix of people all share that in common. Our heritage, unfortunately, because we've had this sort of tradition of sort of royalty and everybody knowing their place, their place. Yep. Um, it has held us back. And even though we've had many changes in this country, it is still one of the things that holds us back. And even our political system doesn't allow newness to sort of shine through. The idea that you could have an Obama figure who could make it from nowhere to become the president of a country would not happen with our current political system in this country, which is, which is unfortunate. And I believe it holds us back. There's some fantastic things about Britain, and I, I love this country very, very much. But sometimes we need to see that our history are not doing us any favours in terms of helping new things really to the blast through glass ceilings. The glass ceilings really do hold things back. What a fascinating outlook. And, and your, your dream, though, came true. So you did it. You went on to own your own beautiful farm in Devon. But before we speak about that, you left school a very driven boy with a dream, but you left with no qualifications. You struggled with dyslexia and you yourself has said that you could barely read or write, but you decided to join the army. Tell me about that. Well, the school that I went to in Birmingham was as much of a <laughs> shithole as the place that I was brought up in. The kids hated being there. The teachers hated being there. They didn't really educate us. They sort of policed us. It's one of those classic inner city areas where people didn't really have, you know, see that we would um, achieve much. And a lot of the people that I went to school with, you know, ended up in prison or on society's dustbin heap. So it is pretty miserable being brought up in an environment of no hope or, and, and no opportunity. So I couldn't read and write and I was dyslexic in those days. People had absolutely no idea of what dyslexia was. And so if you think about it from the teacher's perspective, you see a big black guy being a bit mouthy and a bit attitude, but he can't read the simplest thing. You think, actually, this person is taking the mickey, not the fact that he may have a sort of problem. And even to this day, I, you know, I'm saddened to hear that a lot of young people who are dyslexic or dyspraxic, it's not picked up by the school system and, and they suffer as, as a consequence. I mean, our prisons are full of a lot of um, people who are um, sort of dyslexic. And so I do think it's something we really need to sort of focus on in this country. So I joined the army, not because I had any wish to become a military man, it's because A, I wanted to get away from home. 
And, you know, you don't need to be educated to be an infantry soldier. So I joined the parachute regiment. But in those days, and it probably still is the case today, if you're a black guy with attitude, you're going to get your head kicked in. And so you can imagine, I got my head kicked in. And the other thing is this, entrepreneurialism and doing as you're told does not go together. You know, the whole thing about being an entrepreneur is that you always challenge the status quo. You always say, well, why? Who said? Why do we need to go by the rules? And so if you have an entrepreneurial edge about you, do not join the military. Do not join any establishment. You've heard where, it here first. Where, You've heard it where here the, first. The whole basis of being there is that you do as you're told because, you know, it's going to end in tears. So... I lasted about a year before I got kicked out of the army. And so I have a dishonourable discharge to my name. So I hold that up with pride, a dishonourable discharge to my name. And then, so you can imagine that the age of sort of 17, 18, I was then, everything you would have predicted would happen to someone like me. Mm -hmm. I seemed to be on the course to to end up that way. And then, believe it or not, actually, in those days, if you were a failure at everything there was then only one thing then left available to you, and that was catering. I mean, catering is a pretty glamorous profession now, but back in the day, it was the thickos. But luckily, I went to the local catering college in, in Birmingham, well, just outside Birmingham, Hales Owen, and I absolutely loved working in that sort of environment. And I didn't work in any way glamorous. You know, I'm not talking about becoming a Jamie Oliver or anything like that. I mean, I was flipping burgers and, you know, selling hot dogs. So, you know... Yep. Don't think that I was some fantastic chef because I wasn't. And so I did that for a number of years. But again, what was really interesting, actually, and that's why I keep saying having a dream is important, because I could remember that as much as I was able to earn a living, the dream that I promised myself to own my own farm one day was always nagging me, always saying, well, boy, you know, if you're going to buy a farm... You ain't going to do it flipping goddamn burgers. You're going to have to get your act together. It's funny, doing these conversations of inspiration, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of seeing it's a joy for me because I'm, I'm able to witness some patterns emerging. And when I think back to Joe Malone or Pip Jameson from The Dots and yourself, all left school with little qualifications, all struggled with dyslexia, some being picked up with dyslexia, some not. And this idea that actually it pushes you, this survival instinct, alongside this ability to see the world differently. So before we go on, obviously there was a lot of things in your story that pushed you. But what advice would you say to younger listeners or parents with children who are finding school tricky? Do you talk to young people now? or? Well, I do a lot of talking to young people. And this is my philosophy in life. It doesn't matter what colour of skin you are. It doesn't matter on your gender. It does not matter on your education. You need two things to achieve any success in life. And any successful person will have these two things. The first thing is that you need to be ruthlessly focused, absolutely focused. So if you see an athlete getting up to train at four o'clock in the morning, they are disciplined and they are focused. A lot of people think success is um, easy. It's not. It's, it's a painful process and you have to be disciplined and focused about it. But the second and most important thing that you need for success is that you need to have passion. Passion defies reason, It defies logic. It helps you get through all of the hurdles that will come your way. Do not think that you need to set up some sort of business plan and some spreadsheet about getting from A to B. You have to realize that if you want to conquer anything, you you actually go against all the rules that and all the expectations and everybody. So passion is what drives you through. And what I say to people is this. The thing that everybody will experience in their life, this thing we're talking about, passion. When you experience passion is when you fall in love. And when you fall in love, it, um, it defies all reason, all logic. You know that, remember that feeling when you I don't do. know what's going to happen next and you know, you are, you're just in this place of uncertainty, but somehow you're being driven on, you're being propelled. For those people who want to know what entrepreneurialism is like, that is the feeling. 
Mm-hmm. That is that feeling that, you oh, know. I've never heard how, it being described like that, but how, it's so spot on. Yeah, how you live with that uncertainty. And every entrepreneur, every businessman has to find a way of living with uncertainty. And in this day and age where certainty tends to rule the way that we operate, you know, it is causing the greatest damage to people because they are so fixated on certainty. Control. That control and certainty that they forget the uncertainty is something you've got to actually um, get used to. So what I say is that it's about if you have the right mental attitude, you're then, a, you're then far more prepared when uncertainty comes your way. So what I would say to anybody um, when they're struggling at school, the other thing that you need to be an entrepreneur is that you need to challenge the perceived order. We live in a system which is all about creating order. But, you know, what you do as an entrepreneur is that you just you, you have to start from the, the basis of saying, no, I don't think that's right. I think this is right. And you've got everybody telling you no, that they're right. And you say, no, 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 you're all wrong. I'm right. That is all you need. And that you have to have faith and belief in that what you believe is the right thing and everybody else is wrong. One of the interesting things I say to people is this. You have to decide whether you want to be or belong. Now, belongers need to operate by the rules of the community. Beers are the sort of people who will take the risk that by being, it will piss off the people who want to belong. And a simple analogy of this is this. Is that, let's say you're gay and you know that your parents might object to it. You will have to decide whether you are going to um, hide your authentic truth to keep them happy or take the risk of annoying them by being who you are. And everybody in life will eventually have to make that choice between being and belonging. All the fear mongers, all of our systems, it's all about trying to get people to belong. But every entrepreneur has said, no, I'm not going to belong. I'm going to change the path, change the world as it is. And everything that you see and every progress we have made in the human race is because somebody says, no, I think we should do it that way. No, the conventional opinion is wrong. We should do that way. And so if you're that sort of person at the school, and you're getting a lot of grief for it, that was telling you that actually your your career should be geared towards being entrepreneurial rather than fitting in. You ain't going to end up being a civil servant. You're not going to end up fitting into a corporate environment where actually the people who survive in those environments are people who follow orders and rules. You're the person that's challenging them all the time. Oh, Yes, 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 yes. I just want to stand up and just, oh gosh. Say hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) That's exactly what I want to say. So, oh, right. Okay. So after leaving your short career in catering, you actually then went on into a world of TV. And so tell me about your TV world and then what led you, well, I can tell, but to start your own PR agency with your wife. What was really interesting is that as much as I enjoyed being a chef, that dream of owning my own farm was constantly driving me. And I thought, well, I'm going to really have to get, you know, get my arse in gear. Now, at the time, there used to be a very famous BBC program called 40 Minutes. They used to make social documentaries. And I said, love that program. So I decided, I told my family and friends, look, I'm going to try and get a job in television as a producer director. So you can imagine, they all looked at me and they thought I was nuts. But, you know, back to what I said earlier on about the, all you need in life is focus and, and passion. I, I, re- I took those things and I thought, right, I'm going to do everything I possibly could to try and get a break. And I'd write to everybody. Nobody would answer my letters. I'd ring. Nobody would pick up the phone calls. And then what I realized is that to get through things, you've got to do things unconventionally. You know, there's no way people like me will ever get a break if I'm going to go down the conventional route because, you know, my application just getting into human resources will end up in the bin. So what I did is that if anybody said they were a security guard, for example, at the BBC, I would go and 
pester them for hours and help them, you know, just taking up that um, the guardrail up and down. If they said they were a cleaner, I would go and help and clean the buildings um, for free, just like so I could get in, inside the buildings. And after about two and a half years, it paid off. And I'll tell you how it paid off. Um, somebody invited me to a place called BBC Pebble Mill at the time and introduced me to a guy called Jock Gallagher. This happened some 40 years ago, and I still remember this guy's name. And he said, right, come to my office. And he says, look, you're not the sort of person that we employ in television because, you know, you don't have the education. And B, you know, you got a bit of an attitude problem. But he said this, and this is the important thing. This is something that he said he might live to regret. But he would give me a three-month contract as a general runner and then to see what happens. Now, that man, having the courage to give me that mm. break, then started off a 15-year career in television. And there's a real vital lesson here. And I say to people is, part of the skill in life is to find your guardian angels. Every single stage of my development, everything I've achieved in life, somebody has gone out of their way to give me a break. And what we have to do is find those people. Those people are entrepreneurial people. And they don't look like classic entrepreneurs. They are silent entrepreneurs. Someone who's going to put them, their reputation on the line for you to give you a chance in your journey in life. And so I started off as a runner. I then went on, actually, to do the BBC graduate training scheme. I, you know, there's me with all these fucking <laughs> people from Oxford and Cambridge. Seriously. <laughs> the only black guy, the only one from Oxford and Cambridge, they was like, what the fuck is this? And then I um, went on to make food programs. And another guy, another guardian angel, another, a guy called Peter Bazalgett, and he's, he's very, very famous. He went on to, you know, make things like Big Brother. And, um, wow. you know, he's seriously Mr. Big. At the time, he was a bit of a rebel in his own right. And so that's probably why he saw something in me. Again, he was one of my great protectors. Because in a corporate environment, everybody tends to be the same. And so they get somebody like me, a real fucking rebel. And I just think, what the fuck is he doing here? But he was a really good protector of mine. And then he started off the big celebrity chef culture. And in those days, he wanted someone to break in these big name celebrity chefs like Gordon Ramsay, Anthony Thompson, Brian Turner, James Martin, you name them. And it was my job to break them in because um, he knew that these guys were really tough men. You know, they, ra they ran their kitchens with an iron rod. They were sort of gods. And the Oxbridge types would not know how to manage them because these chefs were the guys that would take you outside to sort a problem out. And that he knew I was the sort of guy that would oblige. I wouldn't be intimidated by, you know, their sort of macho <laughs> things. And, um, you know, I traveled the world making films about food and drink. I had a fantastic time. So I've been to nearly every country and, you know, responsible for um, the start of some of these people's careers. I can remember like people like Gordon Ramsay coming around to my flat in Clapham at that time, um, cooking me Sunday lunch as we're preparing to be and um, for filming and all that sort of stuff. So um, go back a long time. And I was at the BBC again for 15 years. And you would think that, especially from my background, to land in a place like that, this was you, it. you would count your blessings yeah. and you'd think, boy. You're a lifer. <laughs> you know, yeah. you stay there and, you know, you, thank God you're not in that shithole and, um, you know, keep your head down and you'll be all right. But nah, there was that dream. And that's why I believe you have to have a motivator. And that dream was my constant motivation that I secured the environment that I was in. I knew that... Um, I was never going to achieve my dream unless I pushed myself. And I can remember that I only had enough money to pay my mortgage for three months. But I decided I would leave the BBC and I would set up my own food and drink marketing agency. I didn't have any clients. I just had three months money to pay the mortgage. But I just thought, if I don't take this chance now, I never will. And so I did. And again, you find the people who are going to give you a chance. You know, our world is surrounded by fear mongers, but thank God there's enough people like us who are prepared to give you a chance. 
And I think anybody who has actually become an entrepreneur or have done their own thing have found people mm -hmm. to help them on their way. Wind beneath our wings. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I still remember the guy who gave me my first um, contract to market um, his brand. And then, you know, we went on to market brands like Lloyd Gross and Sources, launched that brand, Kettle Chips, Plymouth Gin, Cobra Beers, big, big brands now. Back in the day, they were seen as irrelevant and, you know, they were just pipsqueaks to, to where they are sort of now. And so the other thing that I learned back in the day is that the biggest mistake that a lot of people make when they are setting up their own business is that they think they need to behave like big corporates. And people who come from corporate environments tend to fail in business because what they've learned in a corporate environment is what they think works in a, in, in a, a, a small startup. In an startup. entrepreneurial startup, yeah. And, you know, you watch them and you see them die and suffer as they try and put all these systems and routines. It doesn't work Cogs like that. in the wheels. In the <laughs> doesn't work. It doesn't work. You're on, you know, it, it's all instinct. It's all gut. It's all... Trust, it is human nature at its rawest, at its core, where you've got to make quick decisions based on trusting people. You know, the whole thing about being in a corporate structure, it's all about taking away risk. You know, how can you pigeonhole um, people? When you're starting up, do not make that mistake. You have to trust your gut. Chuck away the goddamn computer. Chuck away the research. Trust your gut. Hello, I do hope you're enjoying this classic episode of Conversations of Inspiration from the Archive. Wilfred truly is one of a kind. It's my life's mission to inspire everyone to build a life they love. It's in fact why I started this very podcast, because I passionately believe that the best way to learn is to share stories. It's also why I put pen to paper to share my own insights and lessons in my book, Do What You Love, Love What You Do. Now, a Sunday Times bestseller, it's a book that will empower you to turn your passion into profit. A colourful business book like no other, it even has its own product collection, a world first. So head to holly.co to get your signed copy today and shop the collection. John Hegarty is one of my heroes. And uh, when I was researching you today for this podcast, you very much reminded me of him. I've had the honour of interviewing him and spending time with him. And uh, we talk about, you know, his lines such as, when the world zigs, you zag. And, you know, certainly, Wilfred, you zag. When I think about the stunts that you um, pulled in your, in your marketing time, they just made me smile. You had a client, Plymouth Gin, and you made them famously sponsor the 1999's solar eclipse. You know, no one else had ever thought of sponsoring a solar eclipse, but you, well, you did. See, what, what I think is really interesting, and that's why if you are thinking of starting your own business, you have to be prepared to challenge the conventional order most people want to think they need to follow the conventional order so they need to you've got to allow that rebel side of your nature to come out and um in a sense what i think is that we need to try and connect with the child that we were um because that child would have had the audacity to believe, to think anything. That is where we are at our most creative. And unfortunately, the, the, the system that we're in, especially our educational system, eventually chisels away at that. And for those and of us... we start us, to form a line, don't we? We start exactly. to get into the queue. Exactly. And I think those of us who have managed to um, hold on to that element of our child. Therefore, it comes out in our creativity because the thing about Plymouth Gin sponsoring the, the Eclipse, it's just having the sheer audacity. Yes. That's what a five-year-old, <laughs> a four-year-old will do. You know, if you say to a four-year-old, who's the best person in the world? They go, I am. Yes. I think yeah. what's quite interesting is that by the time they go to eight, they will then point to someone else. Yes. But what you've got yes. to try and do is connect and thinking, well, I am the best thing since sliced bread. And that is what you need to to not only start your own business, but to 
to view the world differently. And so on that, when, when you know, I cheerlead this group of small businesses who are the backbone of this country, who always think that, you know, they always live with the imposter syndrome, you know, they, they don't think they're good enough, you know, they just sort of, you know, I just do this on the side, whereas actually they're running a successful business and should stand proud about it. And I'm um, always mentoring them to do that, to know that they are phenomenal human beings. When they, though, are now trying to sort of stand out from the crowd, what advice would you give to small businesses who don't necessarily have budget, the big boys' budget? What I say is this, is that I believe that most people um, are not necessarily doing what they want to do with their lives, whether that's a job, whether that's starting their own business. And that's because they are they are terrified, their fear has put them into what I call survival mode. And so therefore, the book that I've just written is specifically designed for people like those who are at a crossroads of they would like to push themselves to do something that's going to give them some sort of personal fulfillment. And what they need is that they need a helping hand through that process. In this computer says no culture that we sort of live in where everybody looks to the data to give them their um the, to tell them how to think and to tell them how to feel that actually we are slowly declining that instinct of that the skill. gut that skill which is that there is no there's no certainty but because there isn't certainty doesn't mean it is bad the whole big brexit debate you know, mm -hmm. you take our, our big political climate at the moment. The reason why it's so raw, it's because it's certainty mm -hmm. versus uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And the thing about politicians and politics, really, is that it promises people certainty mm -hmm. and it does not exist. And all the great changes in our, in, in our lives are when politicians or great leaders have been able to stand up and say this. You know, Churchill, all I could promise you is blood, sweat and tears. But the principles of what we're standing for is what's really important. Martin Luther King, you know, I have a dream that one day things will change. There's no certainty in any mm. of these people's mm. statements. It's mm. saying, right, this is the principle that mm. I believe in. Mm. And so what I say to people with my brand, for example, I don't sell sausages or food. I sell an idea. I sell, you know, a way of life, a way that things should be. So when people write to me, you know, that might mention my products, but it's actually more often than not is what we stand for. It's yeah. a principle. Yeah. And I think that that is really important when people are starting their own business. Sometimes they think it's about the product. You've got to do it. You've got to have a fantastic product. Mm -hmm. but it's more important what you stand for. Take you and not, not on the high street. Now, the whole thing about that, that, just that title invigorates people. Mm. It just champions the small causes. It makes people feel, yeah, you know, actually that is sort of right. So just within that title, there's a principle of the, the small against the sort of giants. The giants. And then you behave accordingly yeah. to all of that sort and of And you principle. think that's very, uh, it's so interesting that you say that. And so when thinking about small businesses, when I when I talk to them, and I think what you're also saying here is that the 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 power is actually in the taking of what you stand for, what that purpose is. Yeah. That it's not just a name of your company, Black Farmer, not on the high street, Holly and Co. Whatever it is that yeah. behind those doors of your business, yeah. there is a heap more to be told exactly. and so if you go out there with a great product fine and a suitable title brilliant and it goes well on instagram okay is that going to last a lifetime it's not it's not it's what you stand for now let me tell you about how i started the black farmer so when i ran my marketing agency that then gave me the money to buy my farm and i'd go down to the, the southwestern holiday quite a few times so i thought right that's where i will buy it and at that time there are a lot of dairy farmers getting out of farming and they just, you know, saw me coming down. They just thought, bloody hell, what's a guy from up country? They call, you know, if you if you live, at, you know, outside London, they, they said from up country. What's a guy from up country wanting to come down to Devon for? And, you know, little do they know that I had this dream for such a long time. So I bought this farm and then again... One of the themes um, that's come across in this interview is about the power of the outsider. 
And what I noticed when I bought the farm is that there was this massive gap between urban and rural Britain. It's as though it's separate countries and there's a real misunderstanding about how each group feels and thinks. You know, I can remember friends up from London saying, bloody hell, what are you doing going down to Devon? Don't they sort of string up black people down there? And I had people from Devon saying to me, why are you buying a farm? Is it some sort of and a, a guise to grow marijuana. People have these stereotypical ideas of what people should and shouldn't do. But what I saw was an opportunity. I thought, actually, it'd be really good to create a brand that is going to try and bring urban and rural Britain together and really fly the modern flag of Britishness. And I thought, what shall I do? And I thought, well, I'll do something which is quintessentially British, i.e. a sausage. And at the time, you know, the, the quality of sausages were pretty disgusting. So I decided, right, I'll do a really very good sausage. And what uh, year is this, roughly? This is about 12 years ago now. Yep. So I thought, well, I'm, I'll produce a fantastic um, tasting sausage. I thought, I'm not going to do it myself. I'm going to work with a manufacturer and we'll develop a recipe and then try and get the things sold into the supermarkets. And then the next thing was to get a brand name. And I was scratching my head thinking, what the hell am I going to call this brand? And then one day it came to me. Um, all of my next door neighbors down in Devon used to call me the Black Farmer. And I thought, well, shit, you know, that's a pretty good brand name. Not only is it a really <laughs> good brand name, there's no one else out there that could nick the idea because there's no. no Black Farmers. And also it had an edge to it. Yeah. People are not too sure about whether it's politically correct yeah, or not. Yeah. You know, you go to certain parts of the country where people are not sure whether what what is the correct language to use in referring mm -hmm. to people of colour. And so it is, the, the, the key of marketing is that double take moment. You know, I don't believe in stunts, as it were. It's about creating a double take moment so people think because it challenges their perceptions and mm -hmm. that's that's what i love doing it's mm -hmm. a challenge the perceptions that you may have so i decided look i will call it the sort of and black farm and at the time you know i had people complained to the um uh racial equality and this is this bit is really important just to check it i thought what i'll do i'll do a bit of research and I did some research and all the research came back saying no do not call it the black farmer because people will be offended who's and going to be offended people generally yeah, the okay. consumers would be, be offended i um decided not to i decided i will still call it the black farmer and it taught me a vital lesson research will tell you what people are thinking today mm -hmm. but it will not tell you what people are thinking tomorrow mm -hmm. that is where you need vision and again, in this age of certainty where everybody is data and research driven, it will tell you what people are thinking at that moment. If you go and ask the same question tomorrow, even a couple of hours later, they may answer it differently. That's why your gut, your mm -hmm. vision is what you have to real mm -hmm. you've got to rely on rather than all this data and information. That's why in politics, they get caught out because they've all gone out, they've done their research, and then suddenly the results will come back and surprise <laughs> everybody because, you know, you can't take people for granted. People do change, and that's what you need to sort of understand. And so at the age of four, I think you were 40 when you bought the farm. Yeah. And it's a beautiful 30-acre farm, as you said, on the Devon-Cornwall border. Just to just go back to that moment, this had been a dream for best part of 30 years now. Mm. What was it like, that moment? Because I talk to small businesses and I say, please remember the moments along the journey. Because as you, I'm sure you agree in the philosophy about it's actually not the destination, it's just about this glorious adventure that you can get to go on that many people don't experience. So you'd believed in that 30-year vision and then it happened. And it's gone in a moment. I think that's what's really interesting. I could actually remember standing outside, you know, my farm and I'd spent a fortune, you know, because it had no running water, it had no electricity. I mean, it was seriously yeah, in need of a lot of love. And I can remember um, getting it to how I wanted it. And then... Um, you know, life is not really ever about reaching the summit. The moment you do, you know, many times in my life, getting into the BBC, mm. running my market, you know, mm. where you could have said, right, time to yep. stop. Yeah. 
No, it really for me it's a motivation to move on to to mm-hmm. to to to, mm-hmm. to to the next thing because you know it's that is the trick in life is not to not to stand still because the moment you stand still it's very easy then to get into survival mode and you do not grow and I I think that I I believe you've got to constantly keep moving forward to 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 to, to live. You know, the, the idea of just standing still, you know, is like an anathema to me. So, yes, um, I, it was great to achieve it, but what it did was that it then created other ambitions of things that I would like it to do. It sparked the next part exactly. of the journey. And just to go back to the name um, and that sort of political correctness and this sort of uncomfortableness and fear about speaking about race in the correct way is something that I've been more and more aware of. And it, it's it's actually got to the point where I feel that um, it sort of holds back conversations or it, it, it starts to um, make it a conversation and an awkwardness that never should have been there in the first place. Well, what I think, I mean, I find the whole thing quite frustrating because if you look at what's happening in a global scale, um, whether that's um, Trump or the rise of the right, that has come about because what I call the liberal elites and the pol- the politically correct mob have um, made people who will have genuine concerns feel as though somehow they they belong to some primitive tribe, because you know they will talk about wanting to you know celebrate their culture. One of the problems we have in this country is that we're very good about celebrating other cultures, but we're rubbish about celebrating our own. And I just think that what we need is that we need to start to have people who are brave enough to say, look, it is fine to have all these different cultures and different elements within our society, but it shouldn't prevent us celebrating our own. I often say, if you look at my packaging and imagery, you know, there's me flying the the Union Jack. Now, if a white person was doing that, they'd probably be being accused of being yep. racist yep. or being part of the far right. And it's like, what madness have we got in our society in Britain? It wouldn't happen in America. You know, anybody of any background would be proud to fly their flag. The only time it seems to be acceptable in this country is when we've got some sort of um, Olympic Games or Commonwealth Games. But in terms of our own heritage, I believe there needs to be a conversation about how we're no longer ashamed or, or we're going down this sort of this political correct route where people can't say what they actually feel um, and being accused of being racist. So I really have an issue with that. And um I don't think it's going to be good for the country until, unless we could have open conversations without people feeling that um, because somebody's saying something about somebody, it's because of the colour of their skin. One of the things that I did, actually, when I launched my farm, is I ran something called the Black Farmer Scholarship Scheme. And the whole idea behind that scholarship scheme was to get kids from the inner cities to come down to my farm, where I would personally mentor them, um, about you know working in the rural environment and also to help them with their sort of personal development. And the reason why I did that, and especially with all the black kids, is because I could look them in the eye mm-hmm. and say, look, you lot have become really sophisticated of manipulating the white liberals who, social workers who look after them. Everybody feels guilty about them and protective. Not with me, because I'm from the same side of the street from you, from the same shithole. Somewhere along the line, there has to be something that switches. Eventually, whatever money is spent, whatever talking, whatever program they go through, there has to be a moment when something switches up there. And for some people, it takes a lifetime. For some people, they do it quicker. But the quicker that happens, the more you could get on with leading your life. You said every single foreign person you meet in this country should be celebrated because they possess a courage the majority don't have. This is my origin. And I think 
all too often people in this country, especially the black community, forget the reason we're here. It's because we had courageous parents who decided to leave their comfort zone to better their lives. They suffered and they struggled and they had a pretty hard time as a consequence. But my God, what a pedigree to have, to be from this sort of background of courage. I just thought I'd never heard anyone speak that way. And I just thought what a, an amazing attitude and what an inspiration to actually drive, you know, this honest conversation that you are. Yeah, and I think, you know, even today, I'm amazed when I see, meet black people who are in positions of power. And I'll give you a story here, actually. A couple, about a month ago, I got in touch with Selfridges. You know, if you're in the food business, one of the places you want to you want to be in is Selfridges. It's in the food halls. It's in the food halls and Selfridges. And so I, you know, wrote to the buyer um, and to say, you know, could I come and see him because there's some cheeses that I wanted to sort of launch. And, it, you know, you know what Selfridges is like. It is really posh and, you know, it's pretty at market. Even their offices are bloody posh and at market. Anyhow, so I go to meet the buyer and walking towards me, it's a black guy. And I'm thinking, shit. I, and we spent the first 15 minutes me saying, I've got to congratulate you. <laughs> because for him to have achieved that, I know he would have had to go through a hell of a lot. And that one of the, one of the big criticisms that I have of our food industry is that it's not very good in terms of its representation of diversity. I mean, if you take the big supermarkets who I deal with, you just don't see people of color in any position of influence at all. And so anybody, any black person or person from an immigrant background that's achieved something, I have absolutely nothing but admiration for them. Because to a certain extent, you know, we've only been in this country since the 50s and 60s. You know, I'm second generation, so we're now talking about the third generation who are in, 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 integrating into um, levels of society of responsibility, and they would have had to overcome so much in terms of expectations and prejudices to get to that sort of position. So, yeah, any black person that you see in a position of authority, they should be congratulated because it's been a hard road hard to get road there. Hard road to travel. Yeah. And going back to those early days, and it sounds like, you know, you've been in this food industry for a long time. You were growing your sausage brand. Tell me about how do how did you get that brand out there? Um, how did those doors open? Well, they didn't open. I mean, I think the thing is this, is that's one of the things that, about dealing with corporate society is they don't like outsiders and they want you to play by the rules. So I can remember when I tried to get my sausages listed in all the supermarkets. I mean, everybody will have terrible stories about trying to get their products into, into the retailers. Yes. Then it's worse Yes, yeah, it's, it's not an easy thing generally, is it? Well, it's more than, I just think it's worse now than it was even back in my day because the whole market now is going to, they, they just don't like brands and they're just going down the route of own label. Um, but back in the day, I can remember going to see buyers and they would say to me, well, you know, what are these? Are these sausages for black people? They just, you know, it's all about people thinking stereotypical ways. But I knew, see, when I launched my brand, and this is what I love about the internet revolution, it was, it was just at the time of the, 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 the start of this big internet revolution. Um, actually, Twitter didn't exist. Facebook had just started. All the social media was just, um, just started. And then we started to see the death of the great gatekeepers, gatekeepers um, for t to information. Yeah. So in the past, if you wanted to to communicate your brand, you had to go through newspapers and magazines and charge you a bloody fortune. So the internet revolutionized that. So what I simply did, which pissed off all the buyers, is that I decided, right, I'm gonna go around the country, I'm gonna do a massive sampling program and at the same time, I put the buyer's telephone numbers, their addresses and their names on my website. And I said to all of the uh, customers, I said, if you really like this product, just do me a favor, <laughs> just write to the buyer. Because I knew that the only thing that supermarkets fear are the consumers. You know, suppliers, they treat like shit and they, you're not irrelevant to them, but they fear the consumer. And that, wow. that is what you've got to do is that get the consumer inside. Your consumer is your sales force. 
and that if they like you, they will fight tooth and nail for you. I am amazed at the certain the, the things that consumers have done on my behalf because they feel that this brand, you know, represents something um, in them, and they could do things. I've been invited to people's weddings that I've never met. You know, people are if you if you look after your consumers, they will really go uh, to the end of the earth for you, and that's I think that. Unfortunately, a lot of people when they're starting up their business is that they put the customer very, very low down the list of priorities and that comes back to bite you. They seem to spend all their time and attention talking to banks or talking to people above them rather than people below them. Talk to the people below you because those are the ones they're that the are going to the They're the rocket fuel. ship, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, definitely. I think what's genius about you, Wilfred, is not only are you fantastically driven and fearless but you have created a business from combining your passion for farming with your skills of being this sort of genius marketeer it makes your brand this sort of complete recipe I feel for success and highly defendable and authentic and for anyone who hasn't seen your advert I urge um, everyone to go and have a look at this advert after this podcast because it's seriously impactful. You made this advert which was directed by American uh, History X director Tony Kay, where you are seen Morris dancing in your Devonshire fields holding the Union Jack saying I am black, red, white and blue and your advert was aired on Channel 4's Gogglebox what was the thinking behind this advert and what was the reaction to it? It's about being audacious. So I can remember that um, when I decided that I wanted to do a TV ad and I went round to see all of these different ad agencies, it was really interesting how I struggled to find the a creative that could come up with something that was totally, totally new. Because what happens is that, you know, these guys make a living out of um, mediocrity, really. I mean, I think that what tends to happen in these big companies when they're spending a shitload of money on their ads, they research it to death. They need a bit of certainty, don't they? They, they look and stretch for so much certainty. And that certainty may come with a sort of a big name that as, at which they could hide under, or it's been researched to death that actually it doesn't have any sort of creative spark. And so one of the great things about um, owning my own company, I still own my company 100%. I mean, I'm mortgaged up to the hilt and, you know, every little tiny penny is squeezed so I could hold on to that ownership. But it just means that I don't have to be answerable to anyone. The moment you're answerable to people, that is when things then sort of get diluted. So you're right, that ad really stands out because I don't give a shit about what anybody thinks or whatever. I'm doing something that is authentically true to me. And I say to people, especially in the early days before you start to get other people involved, just go with what is authentically true to you because that is what will stand out. The moment you have investors in, it becomes different. All of these fantastic brands, you look at their heyday, it was always when the entrepreneur was there leading it. The money men come in, and what do they go for? Certainty. Certainty. And the great irony is this. Um, you probably know the story of Nokia. This was right in the heyday of the sort of the, the mo mobile phone revolution. Mm -hmm. And they were, they dominated the market. Dominated the market. And everybody had a Nokia phone back in the day. And then someone in their research unit came up with this touch-tone phone idea. And they said, no, 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 that's what the fuck do we want to do that for? You know, we're making a killing <laughs> with our sort of, you know, Nokia phones. A year later, Apple came out with their iPhone and it destroyed um, uh, Nokia. Nokia. And there are many examples of big corporates where certainty, we're raking the money in, that they lose the edge of the unknown and the opportunity goes. Your life has been just full of these challenges and adversities. Four years ago, you were diagnosed with an acute form of leukaemia, where you were told that you had very little chance of surviving. 
I I know that when you went on to write this book, which I'd love to end this conversation talking about, but can you tell me about what that period of your life was like? Well, having bought my farm and achieved my dream, you know, that was that was like what I would call my moment. And um, about a year later, I then was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. And um, when people say they're nearly going to die, you know, it's, a, it's an exaggeration. But in my case, there's no exaggeration about this. You know, I was going to die. And I can remember that, you know, I got into hospital and um, they, it took them weeks to try A and get the leukemia under control. They eventually did. And the doctor said to me, right, well, we've got it under control, um, but it will come back. And so we have two options. We could either send you home um, with some um, tablets, but you'll die within three to six months. Or we could give you a stem cell transplant, but we don't like to give people at your age stem cell transplants because it kills people. You know, the, the it's it's so vicious. Fifty six. It is so vicious that um, most people don't actually survive it. But they said, if you do survive it, um, you'll have all of these massive complications. But you have to be alive to have these complications. So, you know, I decided to go for it, and then. Um, you know, when they did do the stem cell transplant, you know, everybody kept saying to me beforehand, you know, try and hold on, try and be brave, be brave. And I didn't know what they meant, but my God, when they did do it, it's like, fuck, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And that one of the things I talk a lot about in my book is about what I was feeling at the time. And um, what I remember is that what it is like to how you feel when you're when you've given up hope and that i can remember at my lowest point feeling that death is better than this it was fucking horrible and i just given up i wouldn't eat and um i just i was just waiting to die and then eventually i just got bored with waiting to die and it's just really bizarre actually because you know i remember having a choice between getting up, trying, pulling myself up to go to the loo or just wetting myself on the bed. And I managed to pull myself up to go to the loo. And just a little tiny flicker of hope. It's amazing the power of hope. And especially when you're in business, remember the points of despair, what I call the sort of midnight hour, where little flickers of hope that then builds the spirit slowly builds the spirit that then builds the confidence that then makes you feel that anything is sort of possible and that's why I'm a great believer it all comes down to mindset and that you know that 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 just that changing thinking helped to build up courage to then overcome all the sort of you know the the, the consequences of the stem cell transplant and that the other thing about that experience is that it really, we all know we're going to die, but it's something that it, we, it's very back of mind. And that we fill our lives with the white noise of living. And when, you, when you're at that point of despair and nearly dying, you actually then have an opportunity to work out, well, what is important to you in life? And what you realize is that there are not many things that are that important. Very, very few things, in fact. And I'm not into yachts or big houses or fast cars. I'm not into things material. I'm really into the connections we make with people that enables us to go on into our sort of journey in life. That's what makes me feel sort of good. I just decided that actually... If I get over this, what I'm going to try and do with the rest of the time that I have left is to try and help people on their journey in life. And that, you know, as I go back and I look at my own life and to see, to be able to spot those little gestures that people um, had given me to help me on my life, the, 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 the least I could do is to sort of hand that back. And I've had great joy and great pleasure in doing that. So I do lots of talks around the country in various groups. You know, last week I was doing a talk to um, prisoners in Newton Abbott Prison. A couple of weeks before that, I was doing talks to, you know, bankers at Coots Banks, you know, 
my experience in life, and I think what I find really interesting about life is that we spend most of our times hiding our vulnerability. But in fact, the strongest thing we have as human beings is to be able to show our vulnerability because that's how we connect. We all have mm. pain. We all mm. struggle. And that my great learning in life is that, you know, all this time we spend trying to cover up our vulnerabilities. In fact, the realization is that is what connects us as people. So that is, you know, what I would like to do with my time, really. Is to and it's what of... you talk a lot about in your book, don't you? Yeah. And, and I've got your book, got it, bought it here today, wondering if you could sign it. Oh, it would be a massive yeah. honour. A massive honour. Yeah. I, I could sit all day on your sofa talking to you because you're pretty bloody special, got to say that. And I definitely, um, I'm a little bit in awe, actually. But we're going to finish off this podcast. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. I use the analogy that um, running your business is like uh, being on this sort of crazy roller coaster. What would you say is one of your proudest moments on this roller coaster of running the Black Farmer? My proudest moment in my life are my children. And, and the reason I'm proud of my children is because I have managed to um, enable them to have a confidence that I didn't have as a um, as a child. Mine is a remarkable story, but it's not something I'd recommend um, everybody to um, the journey for everybody to to go on. And I don't think it's necessary to to achieve fulfilment. The most important thing to achieve fulfilment is confidence in self. That whatever um, life throws at you, you will be able to find a way. I had to go through a lot of pain in my journey. And that what I'm so glad that I've been able to do is hopefully, fingers crossed, um, lessen the pain of the journey for my sort of children. So that's what I feel really, really good about. That I, I think what I'm fascinated with is that a lot of what we do as parents is that we hand on the damage to the next generation. And the greatest gift we could give our children is how we break the narrative, how we break the cycle and we don't hand it on, that burden on, on to, the, to the next generation. So that is a thing that That's I find your, your really, proudest. really proud of them. And then on the flip of that, what would be your lowest? My lowest times, and they do become, still are, it's when I call, when you get to that midnight hour, when you don't know where to turn. It is this thing about uncertainty. When uncertainty becomes such a dark cloud, it actually it suppresses the the, the, the energy and, and and the spark in you, and that you know I still struggle with that today, and I I wish that I um, can get to some some tranquility and peace, not to allow um, doubt and the dark cloud and the midnight hour to have such a hold over um, um, the things I want to achieve in my life. Well, goodness, um, your story is mind-blowing. It's going to be such an inspiration to so many people. There's very few people that's had your experience in the world. And the fact that I've got to sit here and you've told me about it is just such an honour. You push us forward. You push the world forward. And But before I go, I asked you to prepare a letter to your younger self. And I, I don't know what it's going to say. And it's a complete treat for me to hear it. But just before you start... Thank you, Wilfred, for sharing part of your soul with me today. Thank you. It's been a great honour. I've really enjoyed it. Over to you. Okay. <clears throat> Dear Wilfred, at the age of 56, you will get a life-threatening illness and I don't know whether you'll make it. Between now and then, live life as if every day is your last. Do not get bogged down by other people's expectations, needs and fears. What you are now, at the age of six, is what you will need to spend the next 50 years trying to hold on to. A boy full of curiosity, adventure, passion, fun, challenging, and of all things, keep asking questions, questions, and more questions. And never accept the statement, it can't be done. Anything is possible. Continue to be difficult, irreverent, challenging, 
and enjoy being a total pain in the arse. Beware of the fear mongers. They will be your greatest challenge. They come in various guises, respectability, and the know-it-all. Be kind to yourself, forgive yourself for mistakes, and these mistakes are signposts that you are living, not surviving. You are special. It is very important you keep telling yourself this and you'll need to become your greatest fan. Life is very short and don't take living for granted for life is also very, very fragile. Your mission in life is to touch the souls of others to help them on their journey to self-fulfillment. Keep faith when the going gets tough. Don't hang your hat on reason and logic. Trust your gut when the computer is telling you otherwise. Stay in the ring, although the punches hurt, daze and dazzle you. Block out the cries from those shouting from the ringside. They are commentators whose comments has no value or worth. They are mere spectators. For you are brave enough to be in the ring of life, a life that will stare doubt, foreboding and fear full on. A life that is not content with survival, but energised by the cries of all those like you. I'm afraid, but I shall keep moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. So many people listening to this have so much self-doubt and they are not moving forward because of that terrible voice inside of themselves. And I, for one, have that voice as well. And you've reminded me today, I feel teary even listening to you because you remind us that it's okay to like ourselves and it's okay to be our number one biggest fan. And um, I'm now your biggest fan. So thank you, Wilfred, thank you for your time. For thank you. Thank you. I hope people find some inspiration for you. Oh, brilliant. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on whichever platform you've listened. I'd love it if you could spread the word by sharing this episode across your own social channels, empowering even more people to build a life they love.